Well, as um, Pastor Tony already mentioned, um, I'm filling the pulpit this morning. My name is Ryan Jackson. Absolutely delighted to be here sharing God's word with you. Our elders um, have been going through the epistle of James called, in a series called Journey Through James, and it has been just absolutely excellent so far to hear from each of them what God has laid on their heart concerning the passages found in the book of James. I want to share something with you this morning. In 1993, a great film came out called Rudy. (laughs) The character of Rudy was played by Sean Astin. And in this movie, Rudy is a determined person Rudy is determined to play football for Notre Dame. There's just a few problems. His dyslexia keeps him from getting the grades that he needs. His support from his father and his girlfriend is much lacking. And his stature doesn't exactly communicate ideal linebacker. Nevertheless, Our Samwise Gamgee pursues his dream. He meets failure after failure until he gets accepted into Notre Dame. He's allowed on the football team, but he's kept on the sidelines until the very end of the movie when he gets one play. And then his teammates joyously carry him off the field. Would you say that Rudy was dedicated? When we think of someone who's dedicated, we think of a determined individual unfazed by the odds with one goal in mind. May I ask you this morning, what does it take to be dedicated? And let me take that question a step further. What does it take to be a dedicated Christian? This morning, I want to look into James 1, 19 through 27, and I want to look at three marks of a dedicated Christian. What are three marks, what are three ways in which a Christian can be dedicated to following Jesus? So if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to James 1, 19 through 27, and follow along as I read. James says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is 
this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James starts this passage with the imperative, know this, get this, understand this, be quick to hear. My mom used to say, you have two ears and one mouth. God meant you to listen twice as much as you speak. Anyone ever hear that or some version thereof? As a kid, I was not very fond of that statement. As a parent, I appreciated more and more. <laughs> Listening. We all value people who listen, do we not? Have you ever been speaking to a person or to a group of people and you had their attention? Felt good, didn't it? Felt very good. We love people who listen. We enjoy it when people listen to us. We feel heard. We feel accepted. We want people to listen to us, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become self-promotive. We want people to listen to us, but do we listen to them? Are you a good listener? Let me take that one step deeper. Are you a good listener to the word of God? After all, that's what we're dealing in the context this morning. Not just listening in general, which is a good habit, but James is concerned with, are you listening to the word of God? Do we listen to God? You might ask, well, how does God speak? How does God speak? Let me give you a hint. It's the easiest question I'll ask this morning. He speaks through his word. Absolutely. He speaks through his word. So here's your first point this morning. A dedicated Christian receives God's word. A dedicated Christian receives God's word. If you want to be a dedicated Christian this morning, receive God's word. In James chapter 1, the uh, verses 12 through 18, James got finished talking about trials and temptation. He tells us to persevere and to ask for wisdom. Our brother Paul Roberts spoke on that a couple weeks ago, weeks ago, and I was encouraged at how he challenged us to ask God, to go to God and ask God for wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. And then we hit this passage, verse 19, verses 19 through 27, and we're told to listen to God's word. We ask for wisdom, and we're told to listen to God's word. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be quick to hear. Listen to God's word and don't be quick to argue or get angry with him. How quickly do we hear something and immediately have a response? I hate to admit this, but sometimes my wife's words are barely out of her mouth and I'm already responding with a half-conscious answer, barely taking in what she'd said. 
How often do I see a post on Facebook and without even knowing the context, I am responding. I am angry even. Do I do that with God? Am I quick to argue, quick to get angry with his word? Sometimes. Have you ever found yourself reading scripture and God brings some form of conviction to your mind and you just brush it off? It's like, I've got an answer for that. There's a reason for that. I don't need to listen to that. Have you ever been listening to a sermon either on Sunday or or a podcast or some form of media and you just find yourself getting angry because the pastor's talking to you? We want to blame the pastor. But is the pastor... Or is it God? It's an interesting question. Do we really do this? Do we really get angry with God and and brush off God's word? I mean, is that really an issue? After all, you're here. You're here, and part of the reason why you came this morning is to listen to God's word. Many of you have daily Bible reading habits. Great. So, I mean, is this really an issue for us? Well, you know, it's interesting. James wrote to a group of readers who were categorically immature in their faith. Categorically immature. In fact, Warren Wiersbe has a little commentary on the book of James, and the title of that commentary is Be Mature. And he says in that commentary, James was not discussing an array of miscellaneous problems. All of these problems had one common cause, spiritual immaturity. These Christians simply were not growing up. Unfortunately, a symptom of immaturity is speaking before hearing, getting angry before understanding. The offense is at its worst when directed toward God. So yes, whether we want to admit it or not, this is a real issue. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of of God. If I'm allowing God's word to spark anger because I want to cling to my immaturity, that anger is sinful. There are times when anger is righteous. When I'm angry over sin, when I'm angry over the glory of God being trampled by the defiance of man, when I'm angry at injustice, my anger is righteous. But if I am angry because I am inconvenienced, my anger is sinful. I once heard somebody say, getting angry over the things that make God angry is righteous. Anything else is sinful. So how should I respond? If I'm sensing God moving, if you're sensing God moving, if we sense God moving, correcting us, directing us, what should we do? Stop. And we listen. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, why is this here? It seems like a a change of topic, doesn't it? He's talking about listening to God and then he switches to putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness. That is, our sinfulness, our transgressions. He's calling us to put those away. Why is he changing topics? He's not changing topics. Because a lot of times when God speaks to us, it's about our sinfulness. 
you need to put that away. You need to stop that. You need to turn from that. When God speaks into our lives, it's often speaking on the topic of our own sinfulness. The Greek word for put off is the word apotithemi, and it means literally that, to take off, to put aside for a special purpose, to lay aside. It's in fact the same word in Ephesians 4.22 when Paul writes, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's like taking off a garment. That's the picture here. It's like taking off an old, filthy coat. That's the picture that's presented to us here in Scripture. When we put away our filthiness and rampant wickedness, it's like taking off an old, moldy, smelly garment, too bad, too nasty to even give to new life. Just throw it away. But we don't just stop there. Remove the filthiness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word for implanted here is only used in this instance in the New Testament. It's been mentioned already that James uses several references to nature in the book of James. He calls the doubter in uh, chapter one, verse six, tossed by the wind. In chapter three, verse six, he calls the tongue a fire. He says, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. James loves his nature metaphors. And this here seems to fall right in line with his style. He says to receive with meekness the implanted word. About this word implanted, Douglas Moo writes this, God plants it within his people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer, a guiding and commanding presence within. When we choose to listen to God's word with meekness, with humbleness, ready to accept what God has for us, then he implants his word within us where it can take root and grow and become something beautiful. To put away sin and receive God's word is being the good soil that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 4. This implanted word is able to save our souls. Now, what's he talking about there? Because I thought I already was saved. What is he talking about when he says to save your souls? Is that a reference to salvation? Yes. It's a reference to all three tiers of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Because it's God's word that saves in the sense of justification meaning it's God's word that brings to light our brings light to our darkened eyes revealing our sinfulness and our need for Jesus it's God's word many of you if we were to talk through our testimonies you might say it was this verse that really got my attention and made me realize i needed a savior it's God's word that does that but it's also a reference to our current state of sanctification. Our sanctification is the working out of our salvation. It's our day-to-day struggle against sin and struggle toward righteousness. We are continually saved or sustained by God's word. How does that work? Well, let me ask you this. Show of hands, anybody have any favorite scripture passages? Anybody have any favorite scripture passages they memorized? Anybody have any favorite scripture passages that they memorize that they go to when life gets hard? Yeah. Why do we do that? Because it's God's word that sustains. Which, by the way, just a side note here, one of the most important reasons to memorize scripture is to have it when we need it. 
So that's what he's talking about here, but he's also talking about our future glorification. It's God's word that is going to transform us into the bodies that we need to enter into his kingdom. When we shed these mortal bodies, we will forever be free from the presence of sin. And it's God's word that plays a part in that. John MacArthur writes this, it is the divine power behind the truth of scripture that is able to initiate salvation, keep it alive and growing, and finally bring it to final glory, complete and perfect. Receive the implanted word Accept what God is telling you. You want to be a dedicated Christian, listen to and receive God's word. So what is God telling you? Are you listening? Is your heart soft and open to his direction or do you cloud it with the noise of everyday life? And I understand that's hard to do sometimes when there are demands and responsibilities on our time. It's so easy to cloud God's word with the day-to-day life. But let me just encourage you to saturate yourself, marinate your mind in God's word through the reading of his word, through the listening of his word, through the listening of music. Saturate yourself with God's word. Don't allow your mind to be polluted with social media, worldly wisdom, and other people's opinions. There's a place for those things. But saturate yourself, saturate your mind with God's word and ask yourself, what is God telling me? Like we mentioned before, that can be obvious. He could be revealing an area of sin in your life that does not conform with with his word. And if we were sitting in a small group setting, I might look you in the eye and say something like, how's lying? Or how's your thought life? Or how are you doing with covetousness? Has that been an issue? Is God's word challenging you to grow in some of these areas or other areas? If so, let me encourage you, stop ignoring. Let me encourage you, get some accountability and receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A dedicated Christian receives God's word. Your second point this morning, a dedicated Christian responds to God's word. A dedicated Christian responds to God's word. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In this passage, James is contrasting two individuals. He uses the illustration of a man looking into a mirror, seeing himself in a disheveled way, but then goes away and forgets. As I was reading that, I was reminded of the scene in The Muppet Christmas Carol. Excellent movie. Where Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Michael Caine, has been transformed. It's near the end of the film, and the visit of the three ghosts has transformed him, and he's so excited to live this new life. He's bouncing around in his room, trying to figure out what to do first, and he glances at himself in a mirror, and for a moment, 
it's as if he's thinking, I need to do something with this disheveled appearance, but then he realizes there's no point. And he just walks away. And it's a humorous moment in the movie, but I think it well describes what James is saying here. A man who looks at himself, sees himself, and walks away. And the metaphor is meant to be used this way. James, or the man sees himself in God's word. He sees the character flaws that God wants to point out to him. He sees the things and areas in his life that need to be changed. He sees the disheveled character, so to speak. But then he shrugs it off and goes away. That word for goes away is actually one word in the Greek. It's a perkamai. And it means to go away. Brilliant, I know. But what's interesting about this word is it's used in what's called the perfect tense. Now, this might get technical, so stay with me. It's used in the perfect tense. And in Greek, when verbs are in the perfect tense, it means they are continual or sustained. So that this man's choice to look at himself in God's word, see himself as God sees him, see what needs to be changed and to go away is a continual action in his life. It's a constant and sustained action that he is looking at God's word and ignoring it. Looking at God's word and ignoring it. And that is dangerous. That will not promote the growth that God wants to bring about in each of our lives. But the second man is contrasted with the first in verse 25. He sees himself in what James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty. <clears throat> this is a reference to the word of God and the perfect word meaning, meaning it's complete and final and that's what we believe. We believe the word of God is complete and final. The word of liberty, the law of liberty tells us that God's word is freeing. God's word is freeing. See, sin and legalism bind. They enslave. But God's word, when it's truly taken in and applied, grants us freedom. When we listen to God's word and respond to God's word, it grants us freedom. Many of you, you may, you may recall when you came to Christ there was a sense of liberty in your soul. And if we sat around and talked about that, you'd be able to tell me the story. I actually don't have that. that I don't recall that sense of freedom because I was very, very young when I accepted Christ as, as Savior. But I do know the sense of freedom when I'm all in, rejecting sin, and following Jesus in obedience. Let me give you a fun little story about me. When I was very young, I got into a fight, as many boys do, with the neighborhood bully who was also kind of my friend. I'm not sure. That was a weird relationship. But we got into a fight. I don't even remember what about. And I came home, and I was telling my dad, and you know what he told me? He said, you need to go and apologize. I don't remember the details, but I can guarantee you I didn't start this fight. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I walked down the street by myself to his house. I knocked on his door, and I apologized. And even to this day, 
I can remember how my heart was light because I was in obedience with what God wanted me to do. Let me give you another example. In the book, Every Man's Battle, co-author Fred Stoker wrote of his battle for sexual purity. And the fight got so intense, he recounts a battle for purity even in a dream. And in the dream, he experiences freedom. And then he says this, suddenly I awoke praising God out loud. It was Sunday morning. Several hours later in church, I worshiped freely all service long for the first time. Praises continued to bubble up and out of my heart the rest of the day, that night, and into the next day. For someone who had felt such distance from God for so long, the feeling was glorious. Does that sound enticing? Who wants that kind of freedom? Sign me up. Fred Stoker got there by fighting for purity, a.k.a. being obedient to God's word. The disobedient person experiences distance from God, even if that person is saved. They don't lose their salvation, but they experience a relational distance from God. Have you ever felt that? I know you have, because we all fall short, and I have too. Do you want that distance to go away? Listen to God's word and do God's word. And just like Fred's story, it might be a fight to get there because Satan doesn't want you free. And I don't know what you might be struggling with, but Satan doesn't want you free. And if you have been fighting with God for something, even for years, let me encourage you to lay it down at his feet. Can you name it? Stop fighting it and obey. James is telling his audience, listen and obey. Do you want the distance between you and God to go away? Listen and obey. Do you remember the sweet hymn you used to sing in Sunday school? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And that is what James says here is being blessed. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Your third and final point this morning, a dedicated Christian regards his or her heart against God's word. A dedicated Christian regards his or her heart against word, against God's word. They examine their heart in, a, in, a, in accordance to God's word. They look at what their motives are compared to what God's word says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The religious person 
The word for religion here is actually an adjective that's based upon the Greek word thraskeia. This is the word that's found in verse 27. And it means the expression or of devotion to transcendent beings. It's basically cultic rites and rituals. Of this word, John MacArthur says, it refers to external religious rituals, liturgies, routines, and ceremonies. The famous Jewish historian Josephus used the word to describe the worship of the temple at Jerusalem. Paul used the noun form of this term when speaking of his former life as a zealous Pharisee. So the word carries with it a sense of doing something with a motive of formality. No heart. In Harvest Students, which is our youth ministry on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book of Malachi, and the teenagers can tell you that Israel's problem during that time was that they were going through the motions of worship, but there was no heart. There was no relationship. Everything that they were doing was simply a checklist. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, you are treating spiritual responsibilities as a checklist. And worse yet, you're lying to yourself and telling yourself how good you are. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James will have a lot more to say on the tongue in chapter three, but here he's speaking of the person who uses his tongue to deceive self. I'm doing good. Look at me. I go to church every week. I only listen to Christian radio. I don't watch rated R movies. I tithe. I read God's word and pray every day. I only read Christian books. I don't hang out with those people. I don't drink alcohol. I have a fish sticker on my car. I believe only in homeschooling. I vote Republican. Now, there's nothing wrong with this list. But the problem is this kind of thinking, the religious and ritual practice, it removes the relationship between man and God. There's no heart. It goes beyond that because this type of thinking that I do these things to please God is really self-worship. I do these things to look good. See, this, this type of thinking, this type of religious thinking, it worships the action, not the God of the action. By the way, does this remind you of anybody, say, people who used to argue with Jesus? That's exactly the mentality we're talking about here. Not that there's anything wrong with the list, but the motive is wrong. The motive is I do these things to be a good little Christian, not I do these things because I love Jesus. James says that this type of religious thinking is worthless. Makaios in Greek, it means idle, empty, fruitless, powerless, lacking truth. It's not doing you any good. In fact, your religion is distracting you into thinking that you are good when in fact you're getting further and further away from the Lord.
And James here is giving you a heads up. It's like saying there's a pit in front of you. Heads up. Look out. One general would say, it's a trap. If you follow such practices, trusting in them to win favor with God, you are deceiving yourself. Now, don't get me wrong, because I believe you need to have good spiritual disciplines. That's important. But what's the motive behind the discipline? Men, let me ask you a question. Are you staying faithful to your wives? I would hope your answer is yes. And if we were talking about this and I looked at you and I said, why? Maybe you'd cock your head kind of funny. Maybe you'd have this answer or that answer. But maybe one of your answers would be, because I love my wife. Exactly. I don't go to church and read my Bible as a part of some religious process. I do it because I love Jesus. And that's why I regard my heart against God's word. I check my heart against what God's word says. I do a gut check, check my motives because I want to do what I do, not to be the good little Christian that everybody sees, but because I love Jesus. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now that last verse, if that's confusing to you, don't worry. It was confusing to me a little bit as well. After all, why is he equating religious works, pure religious works, with visiting orphans and widows? What's going on here? What makes the visit of orphans and widows so special? Well, first of all, it's interesting. God has a heart for the helpless. He's called the father of, to the fatherless and the protector of widows in Psalm 68.5. Don't forget that in James' day, a woman couldn't go out and get a job like a man. There was no welfare system. If you were left husbandless or fatherless, you were poor. You were even homeless at times. And God's heart is for the helpless. See if these verses convince you of that. Exodus 22, 22 reads, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29 reads, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word for visit here isn't, it isn't, actually, uh, isn't a casual stop by. It actually has the idea of exercising oversight. 
It's related to the word translated as overseer in 1 Timothy 3 when talking of the elders of the church. So the idea is we care for these people as an elder cares for his church. So again, why these people? God has a heart for the helpless, okay. Why is this called pure and undefiled religion? Honestly, it's hard to have an ulterior motive when you're helping a helpless person. It's hard to have an ulterior motive when you're helping a helpless person. What can these people do for you in return? Nothing. See, it's one thing when I help somebody who's as well off as I am, and I believe we should do that. But it's easy for our minds to slip into a you owe me one mentality. But not so with the helpless. Of this verse, Douglas Moo writes this, one test of pure religion, therefore, is the degree to which we extend aid to the helpless in our world, whether they be widows and orphans, immigrants trying to adjust to a new life, impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped, or the homeless. And I know that many of you have extended such help to such people, and you know it does not come with a lot of fanfare. In fact, it can come with a lot of frustration. But that's why it's called pure and undefiled, because it's not about me. See, it's not really that the work is pure because they're orphans and widows. The work is pure because I'm doing it with the right motives. I can help anybody with the right motives, but it's easier when I'm helping the helpless, and it's close to the heart of God when I help the helpless. I just do it because I love Jesus. And this is why we regard our hearts. Why do we do the work that a dedicated Christian does? Because I want to be seen? Because I want some kickbacks? Or because I love Jesus? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained. To keep oneself unstained from the world. How's that going? Are you keeping yourself unstained from the world? James writes in chapter four, friendship with the world is hostility with God. And he's not talking about the material world, the, the dirt and the grass and the trees. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the world system that is controlled, by the way, as Ephesians tells us, by the prince of the power of the air, by Satan. He's talking about the moral world, the world system that we are living in, the influences that bombard us every single day. That's the world that he's talking about here. And he's asking, are you letting worldliness influence you? And in the context that James is dealing with, he's speaking of favoritism. We just got done talking about the orphans and widows. And so he's speaking in a worldliness view of favoritism. Are you being, are you, are you, do you, is favoritism a problem in your thinking? David Platt writes this. He begins this illustration by talking about how the church was favoring the rich above the poor, the very thing the world does. In the world system, you honor, respect, and treat well the person who can benefit you the most. Is that what we're doing as followers of Christ 
today. Check our motives. The things that you do in the Christian life, they can be marked with such words as pure and undefiled. Your behavior, your conduct, your day-to-day, it can be called pure and undefiled or it can be stained from the world. Are you doing what God wants you to do? Listening to his word and doing his word, but is the motive in your heart about you or about Jesus? Do I do these things to be seen and appreciated or do I do these things because I love and want to serve Jesus Christ? A dedicated Christian regards his or her heart against God's word because they want their motives to be pure and undefiled, and we need this in our lives. Because selfishness and bad motives, that's a tricky thing. Selfishness, one might say, is slicker than snot. It'll get in there. It'll get in that heart before you even realize it. So my challenge to you, as you listen to God's word and as you put God's word into practice is to check the motives. Why am I doing this? And if the motive is wrong, then the prayer needs to be, Lord, change my motives because I wanna serve you. So I would challenge you, pray for God to reveal the hidden and selfish motives for the things that you do. Dedication is not something that we choose casually. Dedication is not as easy as choosing what to eat for dinner or what to do on a lazy Saturday afternoon. Dedication takes intentionality. And in our case, the case of the Christian, total dependence on Christ. So as you leave this morning, I hope that you have received God's word. I pray that you respond to God's word and I challenge you to regard your heart against God's word.